How does a man continue to evade us even after his death? And why when that man is Adolf Lempert, did we expect it to be any other way? My name is Andrew Evans, and this is Onboarded. Although our visit to Lviv had led me to the incredible story of Rohatin Jewish heritage, we'd not been able to add much to the life of Adolf Lempert. But it was always our trip to Nice that was set to be the main event. I'd let myself believe that we might even find his second wife still living there. But a week before we left England, I received further correspondence from Agat Roban, the private detective who had obtained my grandfather's death certificate. Sadly, she had another death certificate for me. Heidi Marie, Heidi, I may as well refer to her by her real name now, had died in 2015, aged 74. 2015 was devastatingly recent. I had the sense that I should have, could have done better sooner, and that the story was over. Despite his tenacity, we were never under any illusions that my grandfather was still alive. But Heidi, some 28 years younger? That seemed possible. I wanted to meet her. That was my ending. That is what I had decided success looked like. Her death certificate showed that she had indeed stayed in Nice, had remarried, and that this new husband had survived her. Agat suggested this may be a fresh line of inquiry, but it seemed too far removed to be of much consequence. Heidi was the key to unlocking this final chapter of his life, a part that had remained a mystery to us. Adolf Lempert died on the 5th of October, 1992. But his daughter Linda, my mother, didn't know this until the 22nd of January 2019, about 15 minutes after I'd heard it from Egat. I don't know if there'd been any attempt to let his daughters know at the time. His other daughter, Pauline, passed away without ever knowing. However, I recently discovered that there were people in London that had known all along. There's an incident described in Season 1, Episode 3, in which my grandfather, while dealing stamps in the mid-60s, ended up in a French prison due to his involvement in some kind of dodgy deal. Okay. Whether he knew about it being a dodgy deal or not, because he hadn't done anything like that before. Yeah. Uh, it was the Masonic people. He what, was, that got him out? Yeah. Or? Was so was months, he a um, Freemason? He was a Freemason. He oh, was okay. a worshipful master. Was he? Earlier this year, I met with a gentleman who was empty that this incident did not happen, that the Freemasons would not have helped in that kind of situation. I could understand him saying it shouldn't have happened, but to not even allow for the possibility of a rogue contingent seemed a stretch. I'm instinctively wary of a, a lack of doubt. Presumably, he felt this played to what he considered to be some of the 
damaging stereotypes about Freemasonry. But this was one of the few stories people had heard directly from my grandfather. Even taking the story at face value, one needn't assume that anything particularly untoward had even happened. Being held in prison doesn't necessarily mean you've been convicted of anything yet. He may well have turned out to be an innocent party. And getting someone out of prison doesn't have to mean bribery or corruption. It could have been arranging legal representation. I came away from that meeting, determined to take it further and find out more, one way or the other. Now, I'd love to get all Dan Brown and tell you that I infiltrated a lodge and learned their secret rituals. But actually, I contacted the Library and Museum of Freemasonry in London, who, for a small fee, free if you happen to know the lodge number, will, for genealogical purposes, provide you with the details on record for their members. And soon enough, I had these basic details for Adolf Lempert. He was a member of Nucleus Lodge. He was initiated in 1953, aged 40, living in London. But his membership ceased in 1968, intriguing, only for him to rejoin again in 1975, by which time he's living in Paris. He then remained a member until his death. And there it was, the exact date of his death, the 5th of October, 1992. The Freemasons had known before we did, long before we did. I wanted to find out how, and was eventually able to contact John, the present secretary for Nucleus Lodge. What I've got is um, a box of books, right? And the box of books are um, 60, 70 years old. Generous with his time, John began to sift through these documents, looking for references to my grandfather. Or just to let you know, John sometimes pronounces Lempert as Lambert. But don't worry, we've definitely got the right man. 24th of April 1961, he's now, he's now a junior deacon. He's rising through the ranks. So in 63, he would be a senior warden, and then in 64, he would be the master. Right, OK. Unversed in these ranks, I asked if this was as grand as it sounded. Is that a big deal? Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. The reason for his leaving the Freemasons in 1968 was a familiar one to John. Right. He was excluded. It says, The secretary reported that Brother A. Lambert and Brother had been excluded from the lodge under Rule 148, which, which means they hadn't paid their... Yeah, both being three years in arrears. So he was obviously going through a bit of a tough time then. Well, I mean, that would have been around the time he was divorcing his first wife and moving to Paris, so that would right. count for that. <laughs> but the fact that he was able to rejoin in 1975 meant he must have been able to settle those arrears, so return to some degree of prosperity. Then, slightly nervously, to be honest, given my previous Masonic encounter, in case you hadn't guessed, the man who took issue with the claim was himself a Freemason, I asked John about the French prison incident and whether the Freemasons would have helped. He responded with surprising candour. What sort of year was this? 60s, mid-60s. You see, now, what happened is, after the Second World War, um, Freemason, before the Second World War, I don't know if you're aware of this, but before the Second World War, uh, Masons used to walk up and down, um, parading and all the rest of it, and they weren't a secret society. Hitler decided that the Freemasons were against his whatever it was, and he banned them. 
So for the rest of Europe and during the World War, uh, masonry went underground. It really was, it now really became a secret society. Um, then back in 1986, they said, look, we've got to go back to being, um, you know, people know we're here. So we're not now a secret society. We are a society of secrets. So if it was before 1986, it's very likely that masonry would have helped him. The the amount of things that were going on in masonry, I mean, you know, with policemen and judges and God knows what else and all the rest of it. So um, I would not be surprised if they if he got um, better treatment um, as a mason, um, as long as it was before 1986. So all of all of the kind of maybe public misconceptions about Freemasons date from that? Yes, that era, between 45 and um, 86, yes, there was. A, and so many people blamed them. And, and of course, a lot of it was wrong. Um, and um, But, you know, being, being um, as a, a Freemason um, and having access to, you know, different people would have, would have um, been quite good in those days because it was secret. But nowadays it's not. And as for how this secret society or society of secrets had known when he died, the likely answer is reassuringly prosaic. When it comes to paying his fees the following year, um, mm-hmm. someone would have said, where, where are your fees? And then they would have done some digging, rang his home, sent a letter to him, and, or whatever his address was that he gave at that time. Um, and uh, he, he would have had, to, we would have got a reply saying, look, you know, um, he's died. But back to our trip. Welcome aboard this uh, Easter Airbus 320 operating to Nice. We arrived in Nice late one evening, a taxi taking us to the apartment block in which Adolf and Heidi had lived. A short ride from the airport and a short walk to the beach. My wife had arrived a few days earlier and met us at the automated gate. C'est ma femme. Parfait. Merci beaucoup. The next morning, we planned to visit his final resting place, Cimetière de Les. Nice, by the way, is lovely. Old city glamour at a seaside pace. Our route to its cobbled shores was hampered only by the fact that the Chinese president was in town and part of the promenade had been cordoned off accordingly. The East Cemetery is on top of a hill to the north of the city. And at a rough guess, I would say that it's probably the tallest hill in the world. But with a kind of plodding tenacity, my mother and I walked to the top and eventually found a friendly attendant. After some very clumsy French on my part, he took my grandfather's details and brushed about a half inch of dust from a keyboard in the corner of the office. But the computer produced no results, and he went to a wall of leather-bound books instead. And there we found his name, a handwritten entry. Adolf Moritz Lempert, died 5th of October, 1992. Buried in the East Cemetery on the 8th of October, 1992. And then, On the 5th of October 2000, he was exhumed and moved to Marseille. And from a story point of view, the moment we scaled that hill to find his 
final, I'm doing air quotes here, resting place, is clearly the perfect time to discover he has moved. But the truth is, before we reached the top of that hill, before we arrived in Nice, in fact, I knew that he had been exhumed. I even knew he'd been moved to Marseille, which is how I was able to update my mother back at the George Hotel in Lviv. He was buried in the East Cemetery in Nice. Right. But in the year 2000, he was exhumed and they moved him to Marseille. Okay. The day before we left England, I'd received this information from Nice Town Hall, prompting some frantic requests to their counterparts in Marseille. But as we boarded the plane, I had yet to receive a reply. We do know where he died, yeah. and we do know where he's buried, but he's just not there anymore. He's not there. <laughs> <laughs> he always was a mystery, man of mystery. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> he did like travelling, so he's still going to do it. Yep. In his afterlife. In his afterlife. I'll probably find Apparently. the time you get to Marseille, he'll have gone somewhere else. Yeah, exactly. He's in Rio. <laughs> so why, you might reasonably be wondering, did we still walk all the way to the top of the hill? We went because I thought, wrongly, as it turned out, that the cemetery must have more precise details of this relocation. They didn't. Marseille. Nothing else. I also thought they may be able to tell me why. They couldn't. They did give me some numbers to try in Marseille, and even tried calling one of them themselves while I was there. But, if I understood correctly, this office was enjoying a long lunch at the time. What this visit did give us was the precise date of his exhumation. Back in Lviv, I'd only known it was the year 2000, but now we knew it was the 5th of October 2000. Exactly eight years after his death, surely not a coincidence. So why had my grandfather quite literally lost the plot? I, the thing is, we don't, maybe lots of people were exhumed. Maybe this happens all the time. Well, yes. I don't know, that's yeah. the trouble. I don't know if it was him, <laughs> unique to him. I think it's quite surprising because I think some people, I would imagine, tend to think much of their age. You know, you're in there, you're in the ground and you have a space that is, that is yours, as it were, your family. And that remains, when of course, it doesn't. I found the likely answer quite neatly surmised in a recent article by Kim Wilshire, an award-winning journalist and foreign correspondent working in France for The Guardian and The Observer. Apparently, a grave in France is not necessarily a long-term deal. Each French commune is obligated to provide a grave for five years. When that runs out, they try to contact the family. And they contact the family, they make quite if you're in a city and you want to keep your prime location, you're going to need some money. In Paris, the cost of an imperpetuity grave can be over 15,000 euros. So, in a mirror of the property market, most Parisians are being pushed out to the suburbs. Yay, capitalism! spaces in Paris itself. There's not that many cemeteries either. They did tell me, I think there's something like six major cemeteries in Paris. Yeah. And I would imagine it's the same with me, so probably Marseille as well. Yeah. Um, of course, if a family has a family vault, the situation is entirely different. Most of these vaults have been uh, taken uh, historically in perpetuity. And mm. so, you know, you can carry on putting people in them from forever kind of thing, they won't be removed. But even on a short lease, it would be wrong to suggest they send in some kind of graveyard bailiffs. You know, it's not, boof, five years are up, it's 
still takes time to organise the whole exhumation. And so it's usually two or three years. Their remains are removed. They go into a general ossuary. An ossuary is a kind of communal resting place. But typically, you're taken to a nearby ossuary. That's why I was surprised that your grandfather's remains have been removed to Marseille because Nice indeed has a large ossuary. So why would they have moved him to Marseille, some 200 kilometres along the coast, especially when Heidi stayed in Nice? But we wouldn't, it's too far for us to go from Nice to it. It wouldn't be too far if we knew what we were doing, like where we were going. Yeah. Back in Lviv, my mother and I discussed the possibility of a trip from Nice to Marseille. It would be worth a trip. I'm sure there's a train between Nice and Marseille, but that's if we know where we're going. It might be a big place. <laughs> it is a big place, yeah, and it's probably got more cemeteries than yeah. Nice. It seems weird saying that that would be nice um, if we could actually find a burial place. Yes. And so, sat on a bed in a hotel in the city in which my grandfather was born, I tried to get in touch with the city in which he was eventually laid to rest. And if they can get back to us before Thursday, then we've still, well, Wednesday, yeah. then we've still got a chance. But days later, as we walked back down that hill, we were still no closer. Our host in Nice offered his assistance, suggesting that the most likely location would be Cimetière Saint-Pierre. It's the biggest cemetery in Marseille and has a large ossuary. But time was running out. It was the evening before our last full day in France. As the sun set, I called the cemetery and gave my grandfather's details. Coming up in our third episode, we race to find my grandfather's grave with a further twist that's truly hard to believe. And did you ever hear the one about the mitzvah and the singer in the see-through blouse? You will do next time on Unboarded when an unexpected email gives us an ending we thought we'd lost. Subscribe now to make sure you don't miss out. The Unboarded Podcast was written and produced by me, Andrew Evans, with contributions from my mother, Lynn Evans, and this episode actually goes out on her birthday, so happy birthday, Mum. I won't tell you her age, but regular listeners will remember that she was born in 1953. That's 1953. We also had contributions from Guardian foreign correspondent Kim Wilshire and John from Nucleus Lodge. Visit unboardedpodcast.com to find links to all the episodes and a playlist of the soundtrack as well as an archive of documents. Check for updates or get in touch on Twitter at UnboarderedPod or via our Facebook page. Just search Unboarded Podcast. <laughs>